The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Sports Talk New York. I'm WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here tonight on this Sunday night, the 10th day of December 2023. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way at the helm, riding shotgun at the board. He's in charge. We've got a packed show lined up for you tonight. Leading off, we will welcome in the executive director of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. Rennie LaRue will join us. Following Rennie, we will talk to author Rob Van Stone about his new book. It's about goaltenders before the advent of the mask. It's called Brave Face. I'm looking forward to speaking with Rob. And then in the second half of the show, we'll welcome in a very special guest, former West Islip and Stony Brook product and presently the bullpen catcher, of the world champion Texas Rangers, Patrick Canwell will join us. And last but certainly not least, we chat with another great author, Gary Morgenstein, about his latest work, the final chapter in his Dark Depths series, A Dugout to Peace. So, got a busy night tonight, but we're happy you're here with us on the radio. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show. we got some great people, some great stories up ahead. I just want to mention to you, as is my want, about social media. We are there on Facebook. I am there on Facebook. You can check out my page. It's called The Talk of New York Sports. And also on X, which is the formerly known as Twitter, uh, at Sports Talk New York. You can uh, find us out there, and also I am on X at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't be too concerned because they're all cataloged out of the website. You can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he's the founder and executive director of three New York State Halls of Fame, baseball, basketball, and hockey. He spearheaded uh, a mammoth undertaking when he took uh, a Hall of Fame, which was known just really for its annual induction dinner, an online list of inductees, and turned it into an actual brick-and-mortar baseball lover's destination that's located in Gloversville, New York. I'm very happy to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Rennie LaRue. Rennie, good evening. Hey, Bill. Good good to see you and talk to you, and uh, big fan of your show. Thanks for having me on. Welcome aboard, Rennie. Well, Sowing the seeds of the Halls of Fame. Tell us about the roots of the New York State uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame was founded a year after the New York State Basketball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, that had gone so well, and I was uh, so happy with the way it was received. Uh, actually, a small group of people came to me the following day, following the first induction, and uh, wanted me to do baseball. And... Uh, Baseball is my first love, and I was a left-hand pitcher in college and with no fastball and, <laughs> and wanted to do it right away. So that's how baseball came aboard. Now, who are you a fan of, Rennie, as far as baseball you know, teams? Uh, I actually fell in love with baseball for the final time 
1975, Game 6, Red Sox, Reds, Fenway Park, Game 6. Uh-huh. Ernie Carbo, 8th inning, 3-run, pinch hit, tying home run. And uh, Carlton hit the game winner, I think, in the 12th, bottom of the 12th, walk-off game winner. Uh, watching it in my college dorm alone, and I was just riveted to the TV screen. What a great game. A great game to pick, Rennie. That is for sure. Now, uh, the, the body of work that a player who is nominated or inducted into the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame, give us a little rundown on the requirements. Okay. Uh, as you know, we don't uh, rank players. We don't uh, rank statistics or count really statistics in, in somebody's worthiness. We refer to it as a body of work, a legacy. So years in the game, service to the game, uh, on and off the field, we do writers, announcers, umpires, front office executives, uh, college coaches, high school coaches, major league coaches, minor league coaches, you name it. We cover the entire realm of the sport. You do. You you really do. And I had read that uh, even Little League baseball teams, you guys have the 2016 World Series winners from Maine and well upstairs. Uh, what, what a great night yeah. that was. <laughs> I can imagine. They're great kids. Yeah, and uh, they were included. They, for folks who may not remember, they were undefeated, twenty-four and zero, and they defeated South Korea for the two thousand sixteen Little League World Series champion. That is just amazing. We're speaking with Rennie Larue tonight of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, people may think that uh, we're we're talking about small beans here, but. You, you, we we are not in any way, Rennie. I mean, you have congratulatory messages for your inductees from people in the entertainment field like Billy Crystal, uh, broadcasters Bob Costas, even President George W. Bush made one up for Bob Espermonte. Yes, yes, he did. You know, very nice of him to do that. So we do have a national following. And uh, a great story that... Uh, maybe you could relate to the folks, is about former New York State Governor Mario Cuomo. Uh, you guys gave him a very special induction in 2012. People may not realize he was signed by Branch Rickey, Mario Cuomo was, to play for the <laughs> Pittsburgh was. Pirates. Yeah. We would talk every week for an hour uh, from Tuesday from 11 to 12. We were very close friends, and I followed his – he had told me the whole story about his career, and – uh he got signed because he hit a home run off Whitey Ford in the equivalent of uh, an AAU game. Well, they didn't have it back then, but same kind of thing. And I believe the game was in Yankee Stadium. I think Mario was 18. I think Whitey was 18. And it was a one nothing game, and Mario got the game winner. And uh, that's how he got signed. Great story. Great story. That is for sure. Governor Mario Cuomo, folks. Uh, you have several awards that you give out at the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame, Rennie. Uh, each year you have the Johnny Padres Lifetime Achievement Award, the Johnny Evers Community Award, and the John Cerruti Sportsmanship Award. Talk a little bit about those and who's eligible for those particular awards. Right. Well, we added the Thurman Munson Lifetime Achievement Award for American League people, mm-hmm. and uh, the Padres is for National League people. Uh, the Evers Award and uh, the John Cerruti Award are for uh, sportsmanship and community service. So we're really thrilled. Uh, you don't have to be an inductee to receive one of those awards. 
uh, most often the case uh, they are inductees. But, you know, uh, this year, Curtis Granderson couldn't meet a nicer man, loved by the community, does significant fundraising, uh, millions of dollars, and uh, w- was an easy choice for that. Um, you know, we, we really had a great inductee class this year. You were there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Chris Chambliss, my God, you know, who can forget 1976? <laughs> uh but a great gentleman, just a really nice man, longtime coach after his career ended. He actually, I think, played longer with Atlanta than the Yankees, but was so happy to have him aboard. Todd Zeal with SNY gave a great speech. He's a good guy. Um, and Daryl, of course. Daryl was, you were there. You you could hear a pin drop when he spoke. And you know, my hat's off to him mm-hmm. and then- for what he's been through and overcome. An amazing speech, folks, you, you missed by Daryl Strawberry. It might be online. Somebody may have posted it. But, uh, it's he, on my Facebook page. Okay. Facebook page. We, we can go to Rennie's uh, Facebook page and hear that speech. Quite inspiring. He, he's turned himself around, Daryl Strawberry. He is a wonderful public speaker, and you will enjoy that inspirational talk. We, we're, we're talking about the induction dinner now. We've gone into that, and uh, th- that's a great topic to speak about it's held each year on the second sunday in november following the completion of the world series and that's in troy new york and the evening includes induction speeches and dinner one year the the yes network filmed it and i can attest as rennie said i I was up there you you can actually meet these ball players and they're, they're very approachable and uh, you actually get to see them uh, in in a normal setting than you see them on the baseball field. Uh, you bring your son, your daughter, uh, bring your wife, uh, bring your kitties, bring your wife, like we say in uh, Meet the Mets. Uh, you can right. meet these guys, and uh, th- they're just wonderful people. And, and I have to congratulate you again, Rennie, on, on pulling that off this year. Another another V for victory for the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. Anything new uh, that we're looking at for future induction dinners? Uh, we well, we're already working on the class, mm-hmm. and uh, we're we're just confirming dates for a few inductees. But what I will tell you is, next year might be the best class we've ever had the most important class they're all good but next year who we have lined up uh, which i can't disclose yet is you would be very happy very surprised well that is, that is saying something folks because uh the 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 dinners and the ceremonies being held in the past were absolutely wonderful uh we're speaking tonight with new york state baseball hall of fame executive director rennie larue uh, as we just touched on, the nominees for 2024, of course, you guys keep them under wraps. I had mentioned to you, Rennie, I have a few guys that I'd like to mention. Uh, I don't know exactly how I would go about doing this, but m- maybe you could let me know. People may have uh, nominees. Would they contact you? Absolutely. And, and anyone can feel free to make a nomination. Uh, we generally have more than 100 names each year. Wow. And, uh, again, it's not based on statistics at all. Uh, one year a gentleman from Indiana called me and nominated Carl Erskine. And Erskine was such a wonderful gentleman with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, what a body work and what a gentleman he is. And 
he got green lighted within like five days. That, so that's our great friend Jimmy Jim Denny from out there in uh, Anderson, Indiana. That's I it. hope he's listening. Yeah, just tonight. a regular guy from Indiana called yep. me on the phone, and uh, twenty minutes later uh, we had a formal nomination. I called the board the next day, and it was a very quick, unanimous yes. So, And Jim came this year, again, from Indiana. So we have people from all over the country that come to this. And, you know, we're only our building is only 45 minutes from Cooperstown, and we were thrilled to open in July. It was, uh, you know, 16 months of labor, getting the building rehabbed, and it really came out well. Uh, many thanks to Gary Perone from the Staten Island Ferry Hawks, donated 50 seats from his stadium to have in our theater, which is beautiful. Nice. And uh, so many other, you know, donations, contributions of items and bats and balls and jerseys, and we're really thrilled with the way it came out. It would make a wonderful side trip, folks, if you're heading up to Cooperstown. I believe Gloversville is is uh, maybe 15 miles north of Cooperstown, Rennie. Is that was fair to say? Uh, it's actually close to Amsterdam. Oh, but from okay. Cooperstown, we're maybe 45 minutes away. Okay, yeah. But an easy, an easy drive, very picturesque, very scenic. Sure, to uh, the rolling leather stock region of New York, yes. That, that's it. <laughs> we're, we're thrilled to have that dimension, and we waited for the exact right time and place and location. And uh, we've had so many people just walk in. Dan Peltier, who played for the Texas Rangers, Notre Dame from Clifton Park, New York. Uh, Mrs. Billy Martin, Jill Martin, Valieri came one, just one day, just came in. And uh, Rick Cerrone this year, the former PR guy for the Yankees, came mm-hmm. in just on a regular day. Just You know, people just walk in, and you never know who you're going to get. I know you're in the area of Shenandoah, uh, Rennie, and a, uh, a couple of my fraternity brothers uh, hail from the green and white of Shenandoah. People from up from downstate would not recognize that, but... Uh, some tremendous athletes came out of there. Uh, I can't think of his name now. The the, the Braves pitcher, Ian Anderson. Right. The lead, he also doubles as the front man for Jethro Tull, folks. <laughs> uh, Ian Just won kidding. a World Series game a couple years ago that was a pivotal game in the series that Atlanta won. And uh, footnote: he threw five no hit innings, and they couldn't touch him. I mean, he was a little wild. But they didn't really hit a hard shot off in the five innings. And Snicker took him out for a pinch hitter in the fifth inning. Yeah. So he went five full innings, no hitter, got the win. I think they won two to one or three to two. And, uh, he, he hurt his arm this year and missed the season, but he should be back next year. And this young man is uh, such a nice, mature guy. I think he's still only 25 years old. But he's if Atlanta gets him back full strength, they got another game, you know, big game guy in the, in the rotation. So, yeah, they're going to be trouble. So Shenandoah guy, and he yep. was a wonderful player. His twin brothers in the Texas Ranger organization. Uh, yeah, Shen is perhaps the largest high school in New York State. I believe they have twelve thousand students in the high school. Didn't know that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's literally a college campus. And <laughs> Peltier also went to Shenandoah, who went to Notre Dame. And uh, Peltier had a nice career with the Texas Rangers. Bobby Valentine was his manager. Uh, he looks a lot like Ray Liotta. Uh, okay. From from movie fame. 
But yeah, no, this upstate New York, you know, I mean, I, I love being so close to Cooperstown. I've been there hundreds of times. And all I need to do is get in the car on a December day and drive there and spend the day there. And I get so many ideas because their Hall of Fame is magnificent, mm-hmm. beautiful. From the landscaping up front to the uh, theater to the uh, art gallery, plaque gallery wall, it's all wonderful. I mean, they, uh, you know, we also induct women into this Hall of Fame, and we inducted a lady from Long Island, Mickey Watts Stapleton, who was the equivalent of Gina Davis in the, uh, what's the movie, They Don't Cry in Baseball? A League of Their Own. League of Their Own, yeah. Mm-hmm. And her family came with, uh, I think, 95 relatives came. She had passed away six or seven years ago. Tina Martinez got inducted that night. And uh, Craig Staples and her son gave was the last speaker. And Tina, who was sitting next to me, listened to every word Craig said. His speech was riveting. And at the end of the night, Tina walked back to where the Stapleton family was, shook everybody's hand, took pictures of everybody, and Tina was so polite to them. Uh, she was the first woman player inductee. We inducted Perry Barber, who is the best woman umpire. She's done hundreds of spring training games. But as you know, no woman has ever umpired in a major league game. No. And I know Benice Guerra. I remember that name when I was a kid. She, I believe, was an umpire in the New York Penn League. Yes. But yeah, Perry's done hundreds of major league spring training games, and she would be a wonderful, even if she did one game. Uh, I'd sort of like to see that happen, and uh, we're trying to further that cause. She's a wonderful lady. So, I mean, it, it's fun to have women inductees. Uh, it is. Dwayne Hamilton was the PR director for the Mets. Uh, Shannon Ford was a woman who passed away from cancer when she was 44. Right. And the Mets had called me and wanted, you know, they nominated her. And we said, of course, you know, we'd be glad to induct her. Her, her legacy was wonderful. And uh, it was a very touching night. Jay Horowitz, who was there this year, worked with Shannon. Mm-hmm. And Jay is Mr. Matt. You know, he, yeah. you know, uh, he, he was glad to come introduce Todd Zeal. Uh, he was happy for Daryl. Uh, he's, the Mets are fully 110% supportive of what we do. And they always have been from day one. That, that is outstanding. And J- Jay is a, is a gentleman. He certainly is, Rennie. You're, you're right. Rennie LaRue of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame with us tonight. I just want to drop those names to you, Rennie. While I have you, one is John John Habian, who uh, he was drafted by the Orioles in the third round of the 82 yeah. draft. He played for the Orioles. He played for the Yankees, uh, a good fielding pitcher. He was the coach of my high school, St. John the Baptist in West Islip, New York. And uh, he's he's done a lot of philanthropic work. Uh, his wife uh, does work in the community. He also uh, was the pitching coach at Hofstra for a while, so that's one name he, to consider. Was he born in New York State? Bill? I don't know, but he did attend St. John the Baptist, so I would say so. Right. Okay. The, Super. The, the next guy I have is Logan O'Hoppy, who is right now the starting catcher of the Angels. He, he originally came up through the Philly system, was traded to Anaheim, Caught uh, Otani uh, last year, not this year, and uh, just a a great high school career, a formidable uh, professional career in the minors. 
Uh, but he's a name, too, from Sayville, New York. He was born in oh, West Iceland. And uh, th- there's a name to think of. And, of course, uh, the wonderful Daryl McKinley Harrelson. Bud Harrelson, who a fan favorite, um, all-star, gold glove winner, member of the 69 Amazing Mets, a member of the 1973 National League champion Mets, third base coach on the 86 World Champion Mets, later managed them. Only guy in uniform, Rennie, in a Mets uniform for 69 and 73, and also 86. But we, we love Bud. Uh, you know, we've done Tommy, A.G., we've done Cleon, uh-huh. Swoboda, Cranepool, uh, Jerry Kuzman. So we try and we're trying to really impact that year, the 69 year. But we, uh, Bud's a wonderful guy and uh, great body work would be an easy selection. He, Rennie, his crowning achievement, and he's told me this uh, several times, was bringing the Long Island Ducks professional baseball team, bringing professional baseball to his adopted uh, home, Long Island, New York, uh, and he did it very successfully. They they killed it in attendance uh, for, for the, their first several years out. But he, unfortunately, is not well. Uh, oh. And... Uh, uh, I have spoken to his family, and his his ex-wife, who does care for him, thinks it's a wonderful idea. So we'll talk further oh, about great. that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I'm glad you told me that. Yeah. You know, we did a guy who coaches Chaminade High School on yes. the island this year, mm-hmm. Mike Piencos. Right. And I was so thrilled. Mike is such a gentleman. I believe he's won 17 sectional championships. Wow. Yeah, that uh, is tremendous. Just, I mean, he was wonderful. I was so glad we got Mike in. They were a big rival of ours in high school, Rennie Chaminade. Uh, just a, an amazing school. Uh, but, but I think he mentioned it from the podium. You gotta, you gotta have, uh, deep pockets to, uh, <laughs> to go to right. Chaminade. <laughs> right. Yes. He told me that. I sort of raised an eyebrow. I guess it's pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm sure you get a great education there. And, and uh, any upcoming plans for the museum, Rennie? Uh, we will reopen in April. Uh, we're putting down a new floor during the wintertime and, and when you walk in. And uh, we have a couple other things that we want. We just got the display cases that we've been looking for for so long, and so that's complete. So now we, we have bats and balls and display cases and uh so we, you know, we have some things we'd like to do. I'm actually trying to raise money to buy, to buy three life-size statues, mm-hmm. a pitcher, a batter, and a catcher. Nice. And uh, so we're working on that. Um, the sculptures are, are hard to find. They take a while to make. Uh, it's going to cost me about fifteen grand to do it. So uh, I'm going to do a little front corporate fundraising in the wintertime and I'd love to see those statues find a home. That And that idea was spurred by the wonderful Tom Seaver statue the Mets did last year. Oh, yeah. Just, oh, my God. Just so Lorraine Hamilton was deeply involved in that and the unveiling, and they did a perfect job. I mean, just absolutely perfect. Is Jane Forbes Clark a member of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame, Rennie? She was the very first woman inductee. Okay. And uh, we're thrilled to have her. She, you know, has done such a really great job in Cooperstown and you know I will I will say this for people who don't quite understand the voting 
it's just as difficult to get into my Hall of Fame as theirs. Mm-hmm. There is, it, because it's so deep. The lists are so deep to pick from. And because it's a state Hall of Fame, I have to represent Buffalo, Syracuse, uh, Rochester, Long Island, Kingston, Albany, uh, Plattsburgh, Potsdam. You know, there's all over the state. Sure. And there's so many. The, the history of baseball, as you know, dates in the 1840s. And uh, there was a team in Troy, New York, that became the New York Giants. They became the San Francisco Giants. And uh, they had... They have a statue near our where we have the dinner. It's wonderful. King Kelly, uh, there's six guys on the statue. Roger Connor. I mean, guys that are in Cooperstown. Yeah. That played major league ball in Troy, New York. Only the hardcores know guys like that. That's for sure. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. We, you know, we we have a lot of plans. Uh, we one of the things that was important and why I chose Gloversville, across the street from my building is Parkhurst Field. Right. And it was a field that Moonlight Graham played on, Chief Bender, Miles Wagner, Cy Young. And that was literally across the street from where my building is. And this gentleman who got inducted this year, Dave Karpinski, actually rebuilt that 1906 grandstand. I mean, to exact specification, it's an exact duplicate of what they had in 1906. But it's for Little League teams. And Dom Scala came this year, Dom Scala, and we had our first yeah. coaching clinic for kids, you know, former Yankee coach and former Adelphi University longtime coach. And uh, so we want to grow that for children, for kids, teaching clinics. And, uh, you know, we're really thrilled about our relationship with them because there's baseball literally across the street. Um, I'm, I'm very uh, encouraged. You know, we... This is going to be our 14th year next year, and uh, Yogi Berra is our headline guy next year, and his oldest son, Larry, will be there, mm-hmm. his daughter, Lindsay, who did the wonderful documentary, It Ain't Over. Right, uh, yes. And and they're thrilled, can't wait to come, and uh, we're honored to induct Yogi, and, uh, you know, it's it's his time, you know, next year, and we're really happy that the Berra family is so excited. Well, we look forward to that. My wife and I are going to make this a regular a regular event on, on our yearly calendar. And uh, if there's any way uh, that I can help you down here to, through through uh, contributing any airtime or anything like that, I would be honored to, to take care of that for you, Rennie. And uh, I'm so happy that there's a good relationship between Cooperstown and Gloversville. That that makes everything so much uh, smoother and really puts a uh, cherry on top. Now, let me ask you, was the evening what you thought? Were you surprised? Uh, I didn't think it would be that big, first of all. I didn't uh-huh. think there would be that many people. Uh, it was what I expected and more. I, th- I thought... Uh, you guys ran the speeches uh, w- with amazing dexterity, and each speaker took took their allotted time, but they used the most of it to to get their feelings and points across. And uh, I was just amazed by that, and and the uh, the breadth of of the uh, nominees. Like you said, you guys go deep. Who would have thought the coach from the Chaminade Flyers would, would be getting inducted? That, right. That's the kind of thing that, that makes this Hall of Fame run, though. 
not just the the major league ball players of the world. It's the the coaches and the umpires and even the scouts. I've always told uh, Bruce Marcus and my friend at the Hall of Fame there should be a separate wing in Cooperstown for scouts. Scouts yes, add yes. so much to the ball game, Rennie. And, and right. they really should be recognized, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> but and, that, you know, we were lucky to do both Sal Augustinale and Joe Rigoli this year, long-time scouts, 30-year yeah, scouts. Definitely. It was, it was it was amazing. Well, Rennie, I tell you, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you tonight. We thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us down here on Long Island. The website, folks, is nysbhof.com. And Rennie LaRue, we thank you again, and we will be in touch. Bill, thank you so much for having me on. God bless. You too. That's Rennie LaRue, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in author Rob Van Stone. Talk about goalies without masks. Stay with us, folks. to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we are back. We are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. Thanks for stopping by, hanging with us tonight on a rainy Sunday night here on Long Island. But I hope it's fair and warm by you tonight, wherever you may be listening from. Uh, we were down in the Central Florida area last week. I just want to uh, drop you a notification of that. I don't care if I ever see Orlando again. Driving there at night, uh, I don't see too well at night anymore as it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. But driving there at night with the traffic, the noise, the, the, the hunky tonk, whatever you want to call it, the lights, it's, it's like Bedford Falls, or, or should, should I call it Pottersville, when George Bailey comes back to town after never having been born in, in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's absolutely horrible. It's a zoo and a circus combined. <clears throat> uh, excuse me again. I, I thank God I'm not a Disney file because I don't need it. That's uh, my rant for this evening. Uh, the well, and also the the only time I've been inside Disney, except for the other night driving through, is uh, a Mets Braves spring training game when the Braves used to train down there in Disney. And I think I went to a Buccaneers practice when they had their camp there before one buck place was built. But if you love the Rat Mickey and the Magic Kingdom, wonderful that you guys have at it. 
Uh, leave me at the city limits. That's all I have to ask you. Well, our next guest, he is a columnist for the Regina Leader Post, where he has covered sports since 1986. He is the author of books including 100 Things Rough Rider Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. His latest from our friends out in Chicago, Triumph Sports, is titled Brave Face, Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Rob Van Stone. Rob, good evening. Hi, Bill. How you doing? Go Mets. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't talk to that audience very often, so I had to get my baseball elite. There you again. go. Yeah, and you picked the right team, too, Rob. Thank you. <laughs> now... Why this topic, and why now did you did you choose to to do this book? I I love the topic because I remember the era pr- pretty well. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of fluky. It was it's something that always fascinated me when I started following hockey in the early seventies. There was still uh, two masculine goalies when I started following hockey. There was Gump Worsley and, and Joe Daly, and then a third came along when the Detroit Red Wings promoted Danny Brown for the minor leagues, and I just couldn't believe it. And I was always fascinated with the old Jerry Cheever's mask with the stitches on it. <laughs> right. And that was kind of my inter- introduction to hockey because I, I saw the mask and then I found out that he was a hockey player. And, and then I saw goalies without masks and I couldn't fathom it. Anyway, 50 years later, global pandemic, and I'm uh, our, my editors at the Leader Post pretty much said, especially to the sports department because there were no sports going on. Right. Um, if you ever have a bucket list project that you've wanted to do, if there's an itch you feel you'd like to scratch, Now's the time, and I'd always been fascinated by maskless goalies, so I did a feature on it for the uh, for the Leader Post, and very early in the interview process. Yeah, I, I've always been fascinated. story here, and I managed to triumph books and embrace it as a book concept, and here we are. Good, yeah, they're good folks out there. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by the masks as, as well, Rob. And uh, Chico Resch, folks, does the forward for this book. And he had some really interesting masks when he was with the Islanders. And uh, you can Google that and check it out. Uh, they're kind of crudely painted, but that, uh, there, was, there was no airbrushing or anything like that then. These guys painted the stuff by hand. And uh, that's the beauty of it, I, I feel. And uh, as I said, classic mask. And um, when I grew up, Eddie Jockerman was still maskless, Rob. So, so he was yeah. one with the Rangers. And uh, most of the others were. In fact, it was a rarity to have a guy with a mask. And I want to talk to you uh, leading off about a, a guy who is acclaimed as the inventor or the forerunner with the mask, and that's Jacques Plante. Yeah, uh, he, uh, he um, November 1st, 1959, in Madison Square Garden, he wore a mask uh, for the first time in a game. He wasn't the first goalie to do it. You go back to the early 1930s, and Clint Benedict of the Montreal Maroons did so for a very brief period. But Jacques Plante was the first goalie to wear the mask and keep the mask. And because he was such a tremendous goalie, um, I think that helped as far as solidifying the mask. If, if he had been a marginal goalie or if he'd struggled, maybe the old myths about it hinders the goalie's vision, et cetera, et cetera, would have uh, been validated, and, and it would have taken longer for a goalie to wear a mask. But because it was Jacques Plante and because he p- continued to play so well after wearing the mask, I think that just allowed it to evolve as it did. Otherwise, Eddie Jockerman might not have worn a mask for the first time since 19, you know, in 
Yeah, maybe in, maybe maybe they're taking until seventy two is that a nineteen seventy Freddie Johnson sure. or a map for the first time. Yeah, you're you're right. And uh for folks who who uh, want to Google the book, again it's called Brave Faced Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks. On the cover, if you're any kind of hockey fan uh, with any kind of history in the sport, there's a drawing on the on the front cover, and you'll recognize it right away as Terry Sawchuck. And th- th- there's another Hall of Famer with no mask, right, Rob? Yeah, he was actually the second big-time goalie to wear a mask. He he finally gave in in 19, 1962 and wore a mask that barely provided any protection. It was designed by the... Uh, Red Wings trainer, Lefty Wilson, who designed a lot of the masks that the goalies wore in that era. And uh, um, it's uh, he posed for a Life magazine cover in the mid-1960s. It was sort of an iconic photo that was airbrushed at the time when that wasn't widely done. And it's sort of the quintessential, fo- quintessential photo of a goaltender demonstrating the rigors of, of playing the position. And, you know, Terry Sawchuk was playing in the minor leagues, in 1947, it was his 18th birthday, and he got hit in, the, hit in the eye, and they had to remove his eyeball, stitch it up, stitch it up, and reinsert it. And even Ooh. after that, he played 50 more years without a mask. <laughs> Hard to believe. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, well, real salty dogs these guys were. These guys were no kidding. You, you kids see all the padding that you guys wear today, and then you take a look at a guy who, who you, you'd expect to see in the supermarket pushing a cart. Gump Worsley, the Gumper, uh, played for many, many years, uh, didn't look like a hockey player at all. He was a goalie, and he, his comment was, my face is my mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he, uh, I mean, you don't even see those little goalies anymore, let alone, you know, you talk about the maskless goalies long being gone, but you don't, you're not going to see the 5'7", five, 5'8", five foot five foot goalies anymore. Even if a goalie is 6 feet or 6 foot 1, they're deemed to be too short, and and at least widely, but back then, um, you know, Doug Worsley, Johnny Bauer, Bernie Perron wasn't a big goaltender. Uh, Jerry Cheevers wasn't especially tall. Um, except you can go down the line, and then there were a lot of the Rogie Bashaw. There were so many uh, diminutive goalies. Joe Villamere wasn't a big goalie with the Rangers. Chico Rex, right. uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, Billy Smith. But uh, now it's like it's almost getting like basketball, where you have to get a you know be a certain height to, to play the play the position and. They're not asking goalies to dunk the puck. They just want them to stop it. Yeah, right. And, and <laughs> of, of course, we'll go back to this one because, because it's such a classic. It really is legendary, and that's the Boston Bruins goalie of Hall of Famer Jerry Cheevers. Now, what he did, folks, you, you can Google it. You could look, look through uh, Rob's book because Jerry has on his mask stitches that he would have received had he not been wearing that mask. And uh, it, it's usually covered with stitches, and th- that's just amazing to me. <laughs> I love that mask, and I will always love that mask. And as, as much as goalies now you know, spend thousands of dollars to have their masks painted, none of them are distinctive, whereas a mask like Jerry Cheever's, which was so indicative of the type of character and personality he was, that, that's iconic. I remember walking into the Hockey Hall of Fame last time I went there, and it's on display you know, even before you get into the actual museum portion of it, it's right out in front. And just looking at that mask, it just uh, it just leaves me uh, breathless. I will always love that Jerry Cheever's mask more than any other whatever manufactured. It's really part of hockey history. That that is for sure. And you had guys like Glenn Hall, 
Johnny Bauer, who who were really holdouts to late in their career. Yeah, he didn't. Johnny Bauer didn't wear a mask until his last season, and he didn't play a, a great deal in his last season. Glenn Hall finally gave in uh, early in his tenure with St. Louis, and oddly enough, his first, the first game. Um, he wore a mask. It was barely a minute in, and the Blues' Noel Picard took a penalty. Glenn Hall wasn't happy about it, let the official uh, know of his displeasure, and got thrown out. So his first game was a maskless goal or a masked goalie. He was in for barely a minute, and then in came Robbie Irons to, to replace him. In the press box that night was Jacques Plante. So while Robbie Irons is in goal for the Blues, Jacques Plante's hurrying down from the press box, getting getting changed, and then he came in. So there were three goalies in a game in the National Hockey League, and they soon uh, changed the rules to prevent that from happening. And the, the the style of the mask and the artwork of the mask, who did that really start with? Oh, you know, I, I would almost attribute it, take it back to Jerry Cheevers. Mm-hmm. He was the first person okay. to put anything on the mask, and then you started to see them become painted. I remember Doug Favell's orange mask, with its all orange mask with the, Philadelphia Flyers. You look at the you, refer, you reference the Chico Rush mask, and that was just solid purple with the with the uh, with the New York Islanders. And you started to see it it coming on as far as there being paint jobs. And and, and you know by the by the mid mid to late 1970s, it's very very rare to see like a plain white mask. Jacques Plante never painted his mask, the, the one he designed. But I think you know I, I look back to Cheevers, and he was the first one to kind of make it permissible to put any sort of uh, drawing or messaging or anything on a mask, and mm-hmm. it slowly evolved from there. And and the artwork these days uh, with the airbrushing is, is just tremendous. And back then, too, Rob, everybody's mask, it, it gave them a particular identity. You have Eddie Jackman's mask, pretty much straightforward. Then you go to a guy named uh, Cesar Maniago, who was also with the North Stars with uh, Gump Worsley, and his was a particular style, and it gave you, like, uh, their own particular signature, so to speak. And I loved that. I mean, Jill Villamere always had, that with the Rangers, always had that mask that made it look like he was smiling, and it always seemed so (laughs) incongruous to me to see a goalie fish the puck out of the net with this big grin on his face. And And then there was that sort of pretzel mask, they called it, and they all had that little smile. That was, uh, I think, the first mask Bertie Perrant wore when he was in Boston, and, and you saw a few of those. And, and uh, the, the old Tony Esposito mask, he always looked so sad. And, uh, um, you know, you just, you, you'd almost be surprised when they took off their mask and they didn't have that expression on their face because you attributed <laughs> the, the mask visage, uh, you almost expected the mask to uh, correlate with the actual appearance of Oh, what do you know? They're uh, <laughs> yeah. they're frowning when they let in a goal. We're speaking with Rob Van Stone tonight about his book, Brave Face, about the era before hockey masks and the emanation of them into the game of hockey. And uh, Willem yours was like a yellow, too, which I never could understand. Yeah, I uh, I can never understand what, uh, what kind of steps some of those goalies took as far as uh, preparing the mask. It certainly wasn't. The intricate process that uh, that uh, happens today now it's like they're commissioning artists to to work on their masks. I mean, I, I interviewed uh, a guy by the name of David Arago who paints masks. He's a mask designer, and uh, the goalies want 
you know, their kids drawn on there. Terry, Terry Price had the original jock plot mask drawn on, on his mask for an outdoor game. Uh, they're really particular about what they want on their mask, and, and uh, yet none of those mask designs today, you really have to look closely to see what they are because you've got the cage, the kind of the central part of the face is, 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 is a bunch of bars, so you don't really get a close, close look at what they've done with the with the mask until the camera zooms in on them, and you certainly can't pick out the fine details from the stands. Right, and uh, one of the first ones I believe to 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 uh, employ the airbrushing, and I've had the, this gentleman on the show was G- Gilles Graton of of the Rangers. Oh, a classic! Right, tell oh, the folks about that one. Well, that just looked vicious. That was an old, if I recall correctly, and you might know the story better than I, but that was a World Hockey Association basket. It, it looked so menacing. And he was one of hockey's all-time characters. Yeah, he and, was. Uh, <laughs> and just just an absolute free-spirited goalie, which kind of fits the persona of goalies back then. If you look at the goalies now, they just, they're not necessarily different personality-wise from a de- defenseman or a forward. But it always seemed to me, and, and you might you may have a different impression, uh, that there were more goalies closer to the Gilles Graton demeanor than, than you see today. And maybe that had something to do with, I think, the daredevil aspect of playing goal that just doesn't really exist anymore. Because I think I think a player is taking more of a risk if you're a defenseman blocking, sliding in front of a puck, a puck to block it than you are being a goalie whose job it is to block the puck. I think you're more vulnerable as a defenseman or a forward blocking a shot than you are a goalie but back then they were just they were targets and uh and the protection wasn't a fraction as as good as it is now so maybe yeah. that led us to the joe gratons of the world who uh um you, you just had to be <laughs> maybe a little off center to play goalie because it, of what was asked of you true so true his book title by the way folks was gratoni the loony Oh, that, that, yeah, that, that's the title of Gilles Graton's book. So, so there you go. As certainly, it was a riot. I enjoyed yeah, reading that one. Yeah, cer- certainly a man who marches by the beat of his own drum. And then, uh, who else was I going to mention? Oh, Kenny Dryden. He had a, an influence on on a particular style that uh, was not the full plastic, but it was more like a, a um, grid. Yeah, it kind of, I mean, the first Dryden mask sort of represented the, the, the pretzel mask, and it barely provided any protection. I almost, it was almost like he was virtually maskless when he wore that one that, uh, when he won his first and third Stanley Cups with Montreal. But by the time he was, uh, uh, further on into his career, the mask, it, it kind of, how do I describe it? It was further away from his face. There were, it was, especially around the mouth area, if it, if the mask, if the puck hit the, if the mouse, the mouth, in that area, it wasn't going to impact the face as much. And that was what you started to see as the 70s wore on. The, the mask design changed, and there was, there was um, the cage started to come in toward the end of the 70s, and, 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 and the masks were designed in a way that to protect the face from the direct blow, which we saw with the Ken Dryden mask. And oddly enough, it was his brother Dave, himself a former NHL goalie, who took the concepts, the emerging concept of the cage mask, and the one with, that was kind of the shell, a bit of the Ken Dryden mask, and merged them into the, the cage combination that all the goalies are wearing now. So the Dryden influence uh, probably was, was more noticeable with Dave than it was with Ken. Talking about the goalies of today, of today versus the guys that we're speaking about, 
Rob. Uh, it reminds me of Ralphie's little brother in A Christmas Story uh, when his mom dresses him up to go out in the snow and, and he can't move his arms because he's just <laughs> loaded with padding. And that, 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 that's sort of like the goaltenders of today. Well, yeah, they, they, it's, it's hard to believe. You know, if you look at footage from a hockey game, even go back to the 90s, well, you, you notice two things. First, the, there's a, the rink boards aren't as uh, decorated. And you also notice that the, the goalies aren't as bulky. Uh, it, it just, it's amazing how, how they've just, it's almost like they've inflated them. And uh, if, if you watch footage from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, there's a lot more net when you see a shooter come on in. And, and part of that, I mean, just, um, the, the, the padding is so, not just in terms of the mask, the, the protection was really minimal if you go from the, from the, the neck down. You know, Glenn Hall told me, they used to take that bubble wrap that comes in packages. He used to take that and wrap it around his uh, arms to give him some sort of bicep or forearm padding. Yeah, that's the degree to which they have to improvise, and that's not going to do a heck of a lot of good against a uh, hundred mile an hour slap shot. But any, anything they could find, they would they would use. But they still weren't just engulfing the net the way they are now. A special breed, as we said, Ron. Rob, that is for sure. Um, very little padding, it looked like, when they were standing out there. When you take a look at Kenny Dryden and his famous pose, leaning on his stick uh, during a timeout, uh, no padding compared to what they have today. And uh, it was really, really a, an adventure for these guys, I think. <laughs> well, you look at the goalie gloves, too, and you just wonder, making a glove safe, how much would that, would that have hurt? And uh, now the, the goalie gloves are almost like riot shields or something. Huge, uh, but uh, back then they were they were more modest in size, and there wasn't there really didn't seem to be a, a lot of protection offered there. The, the leg pads uh, didn't really uh, they they were somewhat more protective than the than the rest of the equipment. But the, the the way they were manufactured back then, they would get heavier and heavier and heavier as the players sweated and flopped around on the ice. And, more and by the end of the game, the, the pads weighed more, way more than they did at the start. So that was another rigor of playing goal was just the the uh, the uh, deterioration of the equipment in terms of its uh, utility uh, as the game evolved. Sure, the losses effectiveness. Do you know, Rob, who the uh, the first one to wear the cage, like a, the the baseball catcher's mask? That is a really good one. I'm trying to remember it. I think I wrote that. I, my mind is is not cooperating with me right now. That's okay. Um, it's, uh, you know, Dave Dryden kind of um, saw that concept and and embraced it. I I uh, it was very it was a lot more popular in Europe before it uh, before it kind of morphed into the mainstream in North in North America. If you look at the the Russian teams, you know, the early 1970 Russia team with Vladislav Trechak. And his mask was a lot like a, a, a catcher's mask. And as the as it as the 70s wore on, you saw that uh, a lot more widely in the National Hockey League. But uh, Europe seemed to uh, embrace it uh, more. There was a I think a goalie in the a Swedish goalie in the 72 Olympics who basically uh, wore a hockey helmet with a cage on it, and he ended up in the in the, uh, in the playing in the World Hockey Association. I think his name was Leif Holmquist. And uh, he ended up playing in the World Hockey Association with a different sort of mask. But uh, I think that was a European influence that eventually made its way uh, to North America. 
Do you think the WHA afforded uh, goalies to really uh, – come up with an individual style like i know bernie perrant when it when he moved over to the wha had uh a colorful helmet yeah, yeah i think the wha was just uh it's almost like the american basketball association I was just gonna way, say that, right yeah. compared to the nba or the american football league compared to the nfl in the early days of the afl it was it was such a contrast to the nfl because it was a lot more wide open and you had the san diego chargers and some of those teams that Introduce concepts that are still being used. You look at the the uh, the NBA, which in the, for a lot of the seventies and sixties was pretty much uh, kind of a half court game. Whereas in the the, the, uh, the American Basketball Association brought us David Thompson, brought us Julius Irving and David Thompson, and and you saw that a bit with the World Hockey Association, where it was just a it was it was almost like an outlaw league, and you had some real characters and and some some really legendary stories about games gone awry and it's i don't think it's accidental that the last maskless goalie uh the last full-time maskless goalie played in the world hockey association and that was andy brown of the indianapolis racers and and then for a fraction of a game in in early in 1978 wayne rutledge wayne rutledge of the houston arrows uh came in to replace lynn zimmerman i think who had some equipment issues or was ill or something and Wayne Rutledge came off the bench without a mask and finished that game. And so uh, the, the last two maskless goalies in professional hockey history both played in the World Hockey Association where, so, where there were so many shenanigans. Yeah, I, I believe, uh, as you uh, drew the parallel, Rob, that uh, they went for the characters, just like the ABA and the, and the American Football League did. The, the, the bright, colorful uniforms, of course, you had the ball in the ABA. And uh, guys like Derek Sanderson were, were brought in, and uh, I think they went for the characters in the WHA. <laughs> they really did, you know. They, and uh, you know, there was the they really didn't change the. You know, there was there weren't any real necessarily stylistic differences between the games, although there were some. I think there were some penalty minute totals that that were inflated, but you also had the Broad Street Bullies, and you had that in the, in the National Hockey League as well. But uh, you know, it's not like the. It wasn't like where the ABA, the ABA had the three point line and the NBA didn't. It, there was no. There wasn't anything like that. But it was just a just such a wild league, and, and uh, I think you had to be a little <laughs> yeah a little eccentric to play in that league because there weren't many direct flights from point A to point B when you were when you were playing in that league, and I think you have to make your own fun half the time. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Now, there's one one chapter I want to ask you about, Chapter 14, You Can't Hurt Cement. Give folks a little rundown on that one. That was the, uh, was that the Russ Gillow tra- chapter? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, he, um, he was, <laughs> uh, he played, um, like, well, he dressed for one game with the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, what happened, Bruce Gamble was the, was the Flyers goalie and they were in Vancouver and he, uh, he suffered a heart attack during the game and never played again. It was February 8, 1972. And, uh, so, uh, in comes, you know, Doug Favell was the Flyers other goalie, but they needed a backup goaltender for, for a game in, in Los Angeles. So, uh, Russ Gillow had been playing in Spokane. They flew him down to, from Spokane, to uh, actually from, from Spokane to Oakland, pardon me, and then they he fly, traveled from helico- by helicopter from Oakland, from the Oakland airport to the rink, just to be a backup goalie for one night to Doug Favell, 
because Bruce Gamble was unavailable. And then he went back to Spokane and resumed his minor league career. It was, it was just, it's odd that he, we wore, we wore a National Hockey League uniform for one evening. Right. And that was it. And, uh, and he had played Masters goal pretty much through, for most of the, uh, the 1960s and, and his wife, uh, totally objected to that. And eventually he came around, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, that's the thing. Like a lot of the guys of that description, they, um, they weren't that well known, but they got hit in the head just as often as the National Hockey League guys did. <laughs> right. you know, there, there were so there were so many comparatively anonymous goaltenders who who bled just as much and had just as many stitches applied to their face because uh, because of pucks and, and the lack of a mask. And that was kind of an interesting part of the book to me too, is really to delve into the stories of people who I of whom I had not heard or, or of whom I had barely heard, and uh, really kind of tell some stories that hadn't been told before, whether it was Russ Gillow or Bob Perrow or, or Ian Young or an absolutely great character, uh, Chapter 16, uh, Gay Cooley, just an absolutely wonderful guy with a great story to tell. And uh, just uh, uh, that was a real privilege just to expand my knowledge. I, I, I knew a lot about the massive goalies who were well-known, and I knew more after I finished the project, but goalies of whom I had not heard and were kind enough to share their stories with me. Uh, that was uh, one of the real rewards of doing this. Well, Rob Van Stone, the book Brave Face, full of those stories, folks. You will enjoy this book immensely. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on Long Island. Again, the book Brave Face, Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks, and that's Rob Van Stone, folks. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Bill. Have a great night. Take care. You too. Coming up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk to a local guy from West Islip to Stony Brook to the World Series Championship. Stick around, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.